0: Before we get into it, I just want to remind those of you who are new here, or maybe you've never heard this, um, that we have an environment that would be perfect as a next step for you. If this is your first time or second time, or you've been around a while, but you still feel like you're new, uh, you should check out our Start Here class. uh, The next one starts at the beginning of October, the first Monday in October. It's three Mondays in a row, and it's really a, a, a small environment where we will talk with you about what... How, you, how we want to help you grow in your faith and how you can be involved and whatever. So if you're looking for a next step, that's the one to take. There's information in your program about it, and you can mark on the back of your connection card if you're interested in that. So uh, please do check that out. All right, well, we're going to finish up Chapter 12 today of the Gospel of Mark. We've been working our way through it this year. And, um, and this, uh, this section really has to do with the Great Commandment. The Great Commandment, it's a well-known idea, well-known passage, though it may be new to you and that's okay, is the idea that we're to love God and love our neighbors. That's kind of the the big idea that comes out of uh, the end of Mark 12 here. Next week, we're going to look at Mark 13. And next week, we're actually going to look at all of Mark 13 as a whole because it's just one long talk that Jesus kind of gives with a few of his close disciples. And so we're going to look at it all at once. And it has to do with the end times ooh, the end times, right? And you're like, isn't there a blood moon tonight or some <laughs> n- nonsense that you're thinking about? So if we're here next week, that's what we'll talk about. And, um, and it's interesting to me because as I've been around, you know, Christians and church for a while, it seems to me like Christians get more fired up about Mark 13 than about Mark 12. Christians are more intrigued and more interested and more hungry to hear about the end times than they are to hear about the thing that Jesus said is the most important thing in the Bible. And so I don't know if we just get too bored with the most important stuff and we are into the fringe stuff, but, but uh, that's messed up. And so today we're going to look at the most important thing that Jesus said we could think about. And so that's what we're going to be about today. Uh, this relates to love. And so our kind of three things we're going to look at today is the command of love, the Lord of love. And the cost of love. The command of love, the Lord of love, and the cost of love. That's what we'll look at, but before we do, let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you speak to us, you give us promises, you give us commands, and you give us warnings. And Lord, if we will trust you and obey you, it leads to life and blessing. If we distrust you and disobey you, it leads to death and destruction and pain. And so God, give us faith, give us trust of you. Allow us to hear what you say and to trust you and to desire to obey it, that we might walk in a path of life. We ask for that in Jesus' great name. Amen. Amen. All right, well the setting for this particular passage that we're looking at here today is the last week of Jesus' Or pre-death and resurrection ministry. So he's going to be crucified at Calvary on Friday. We're now on Tuesday. We've been stuck on Tuesday here for a while. It's taken us a, a little bit. Um, but we're on Tuesday. On Monday, he had gone into the temple. He had overturned all, this, uh, all these tables and had really condemned a lot of the activity that was happening there. He shows up Tuesday and the leaders confront him, say, who do you think you are? What do you think you're doing? Who gave you the authority to do this? And that kicks off a series of encounters and really clashes between the Pharise- Jesus and the Pharisees, Jesus and the Sadducees, Jesus and the scribes. These were the main religious leaders. And so that's what's been going on, and that's what we're going to finish looking at here um, today. And so Jesus had been challenging um, these people who had confronted him, right? The Pharisees had come trying to trap Jesus and the Sadducees came and they tried to trap Jesus and Jesus answered them masterfully. And that really gives us the setting of the next thing we see. Verse 28, one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? I don't know about you, this is a, this is a like, blessing to get a question that's actually sincere, Right, every question up to this point has, has been trying to prove Jesus wrong, trying to trap him. This question actually seems sincere. And, and Jesus in this is then going to give us the command of love, the command of love. Right, the, the, there were a bunch of commands in, in the scriptures, a bunch of commandments. And, and this scribe would have known this well. There were actually, people have counted, there are 613 commands in the Old Testament. Uh, 365 of them are negative, like don't murder, Uh, 248 are positive like care for the orphan care for the outsider those sorts of things so you add that all up 613 the scribes had kind of divided them into light commands and heavy commands right sort of like if you come from any kind of Roman Catholic background you know you have mortal sins and venial sins and these different kinds of things and uh, they they were doing that and I don't know what it is about us we like to rate things Right, what's your favorite this and what's the best movie and who are the best actors and who are the best quarterbacks? They're rarely from Arizona. They weren't playing last night, that's for sure. Um, but we like to just rank. What, what, what do you think? And, and who's the, you know, what's the poll? And we always want to find out what's the best thing? What's the most important thing? And so that's what this scribe is doing. And so he says, there's all these commandments, Jesus. Boil it down for me. What's the main thing that I can't miss? And Jesus actually gives him two that go together. The first one comes from Deuteronomy 6. It would be a passage that uh, this man would have been very familiar with. Any faithful Jew would have. It was known as the Shema. And it would have been as well-known, probably more well-known to them as, as we would know the Lord's Prayer. Right? Many of you, if you grew up with any kind of Christian tradition, you could recite the Lord's Prayer. Um, they would have been able to recite the Shema. Shema. Because twice a day, morning and evening, they actually did recite this, and it was called the Shema because that's the Hebrew word for hear, and that's the first word of the verse. So Jesus answers, verse 29, the most important is Shema, hear, O Israel. Here's the most important command, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That word with has the idea of coming out of. So Jesus is saying, love the Lord God from your heart and from your soul and from your mind and from your strength. From every part of you, Jesus says, love the Lord your God. And that was just him quoting Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, this well-known thing. And then Jesus says, hey, you didn't ask for two, but I'm going to give you two because they're inextricably linked. And then he quotes from Leviticus 19, verse 31. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, there is no other commandment greater than these. What does Jesus say? It's the most important commandment. Love God, we might paraphrase it, with all your everything. Right, we can nuance, well, what is heart and what is mind and what is, just everything. Love God totally. And love your neighbor as yourself. There's nothing else, Jesus says, more important than that. Now, it's interesting that Jesus gives two, right? And we might want to try to separate them, but they're they're inseparable. It reminds me of this summer I was with a friend that I hadn't seen in a long time. It had been probably six years since I'd seen him. And we were together with some other friends, and a bunch of us had not really seen each other for a long time. And this one particular friend, uh, now he and his wife have three kids, and uh, actually now four. She was pregnant at the time. They, They now have four. And his youngest at that, on that particular day was this really sweet girl who was about two who just couldn't stop smiling. I mean, she was just like this adorable little kid. And one of my other buddies said to him, man, that girl's so cute. She just does not stop smiling. And my friend says, yeah, if there was a fire, she's probably the one I'd rescue if you're a parent that'd be, that'd be an interesting exercise right do that one on date night next time you know which which kid would we rescue first right what you'll find is you, you can't de- that you can't decide that maybe you can that's scary but but right you, you go I both I can't I can't pick one over the other I need we gotta have both right I'll go here you go there we're you know we're, we're getting them both that's what Jesus is saying you can't separate these things if you love God but you love but you don't love your neighbor you ignore that then you're in some kind of weird mystical thing that actually doesn't really demonstrate you love God and if you say well I love people but you don't care about God well then you're just kind of a humanist but if you want to be a faithful follower of Jesus it's love God and love neighbor they both go together it's part of the whole package well the scribe sees this the scribe gets this he says verse 32 and the scribe said to him you are right teacher At which point, this is where you know Jesus is godlier than me, because I'd have been like, I know, I know I'm right. Jesus doesn't say that. He just says, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he's one and there's no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. That's an amazing statement. Now we're not familiar, there's all these different kinds of sacrifices, they get confusing. When you look up what he's talking about here, a whole burnt offering, what he's talking about is the kind of sacrifice that was put on the altar and torched just to a crisp. None of the meat was saved, it was just purely this whole offering to, to say, I'm going to entirely release this to God. And the scribe's saying, this is true, Jesus, you're right, because the most sacred ritual thing I could do is not nearly as good as loving God and loving my neighbor do we believe that? I mean I know we've heard that a lot if you've been around church if you've you've heard of the great commandment people talk about the great commandment and the great commission and we know yeah love I wonder if we've heard it so much that we've sort of stopped thinking about it or maybe we just assume oh yeah of course I love God and of course I love people do we? Is that front and center in our thinking? It seems like it should be. I remember, uh, this is probably a couple years ago now, sitting with a group of people, and I actually did this a few different times because the answers I was getting was so interesting to me. And I would sit with people and go, Do you feel like you're growing in your faith right now? Like, are you growing closer? Are you you growing more as a healthy disciple? Yeah, like on a scale of one to ten, how are you growing? I'd get whatever number I'd get. Some was low, some was high. And then I'd say, well, how did you come up with that? Like, how did you, what criteria did you use to say, oh, I think I'm growing at an eight? Or I think I'm growing at a three? Like, how did you, and you know what was interesting? Every person, whether they said, I think I'm really growing a lot, or, or I don't think I am, I'm kind of stalled, every person filtered it through the lens of, am I being religiously busy? Like, am I serving in church? Am I studying my Bible? Am I praying? Am I kind of doing the right activities? Or they they viewed it through a lens of, am I growing in my knowledge? Do I know more? Am I learning more? Am I reading more? Am I studying more? Am I discovering more? Nobody, and I talked to a dozen people at least, not one person used love as the grid through which to answer that question. What does that say? I think what it says is that we all think what really matters is how much we know and what really matters is how much we do and Jesus says what really matters is how much you love love is the measure love is the indicator are you growing in your faith or not are you growing as a healthy disciple or not and I love that because what that means is that if you've been a Christian for 30 minutes you can be a healthy disciple if you're growing in love of God and people Right? If the measurement is how much you know or how much you do, well, then you've got to be around a while before you can be a healthy disciple. But if, you, if it's love, well, I can start growing in that now. And if you've been a Christian for 30 years and you know everything and you have more degrees than Fahrenheit, you can still grow if you love. If you love. That's what this is about. And so that whole journey, as well as this passage, really started getting us as a church uh, leadership thinking, how do we help people reframe how they see their Christian life. And specifically, is there a tool we could give that's easily transferable, the kind of thing you could draw on a napkin you could share with your kids that would very easily help people go, oh, here's how I can evaluate whether I'm growing in love. And so that birthed for us what we now call the wheel. I shared this, uh, the sermon in January. You may or may not have been here. I've talked about it in a few other ministry environments because some of people are kind of teaching through this. it's not necessarily the thing we always talk about like publicly, but it is the thing that's behind the scenes. It's the engine that's running everything else in our church, and it's this idea of the wheel. And it's really an attempt to try to, to, try to give us a tool to help us think through, am I loving God? Am I loving neighbor? All right, so here's, here's a picture of the wheel, a blank. Picture it as a wheel like a bicycle wheel, okay? So you've got the rim, and then you've got spokes, okay? These aren't quadrants. These are spokes. It just I guess it looks nicer if it's, you know, like that. So these are spokes, and they're connected to a hub, right? And the idea is that we want to be growing, we want to be moving, we want to be progressing in our love of God. That's how we become a healthy disciple. And all these spokes have to connect to this hub in order for us to understand uh, and to to be growing in this relationship, all right? So this is, again, just a way of trying to apply what we just read. Now, one of the things that really helps is that this isn't the only place in the Bible that talks about this. This this idea was so important that in fact one of Jesus' closest disciples, John, who wrote the Gospel of John, and then three letters later, first, second, third, John, John so got this that he talked about this actually quite a bit. And so there's actually a place in 1 John 4 where John starts to really unpack and apply some of what Jesus is talking about here in Mark twelve. And and this is a great way to help us think through this wheel, all right? So, so look at 1 John 4, verse 10. Again, this is a close disciple of Jesus. Here's what he says. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, we'll talk about propitiation, what that means in a second. But here's what John's saying. John, again, close disciples going, the greatest command is love God with everything. Love your neighbor as yourself. But, but in this is love, not that we loved God. Listen. We do not do that. We fail at that command. We may think, oh yeah, I'm trying. We don't do it. Love is not starting with our love for God. In fact, what we do is we rebel from God. We say, I don't want to trust God. I don't want to obey God. I want to live for me. I want to do my thing. That's at the heart of sin, right? Adam and Eve distrusting God's heart and disobeying it. Putting themselves on the throne of their life. John says, that's what we all do. And so if you want to know what love is, you can't start with us because we blow it. Instead, what you have to do is you have to look at God, and this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. The starting point of us being able to love God and love neighbor is not ourselves. It's looking to God's love. God loved us. How do we know that? It says, and He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. All right, show of hands, how many of you used the word propitiation this week at work? No one? Yeah, you wouldn't, right? This is a very technical, theological word. You kind of only read it in the Bible, and you go, well, why can't they pick a different word? Because it's such a good word. It's a beautiful word when you understand what it's saying. Here's, here's the way I understand and, and the easiest way I think about propitiation. When I read that word, I think wrath absorber. Wrath absorber, right? You have shock absorbers on your car, hopefully, and you ride down the street and dum dum Right, And you hit something, but you don't feel it because those absorb the shock. Well, what would be a wrath absorber? Why would God need to send his son as a wrath absorber? Well, because we have all distrusted and disobeyed God and put ourselves in the throne of our lives. We are necessarily guilty and deserve God's judgment, deserve God's wrath, deserve God's punishment. And so we didn't love God. We ran from God, and yet God loved God us and sent His Son, His precious only Son, to be the wrath absorber for our sins. That is what's happening on the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not merely dying as an example. Jesus is dying to absorb the punishment and the wrath and the judgment that you and I and anyone else who will trust Him deserve. That's what's happening. Have you ever wondered, why does Jesus die before the other two people he's crucified with? Right, he's crucified between two thieves. We'll look at this in a few weeks. And he dies first. They have to go back later and break the legs of the other ones so that they die before sundown. But Jesus is already dead. Why? Well, it's not because of the crown of thorns. It's not because of the nails through his hand. It's not because he'd been whipped and scourged. So had they. It's because he was absorbing the wrath of God for sin. Which is why he stands there and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a cry of desperation. It's a cry of separation. It's a cry of absorbing God's wrath. And John, one of Jesus' closest disciples, says you want to talk about love, it starts with knowing that you are loved by God. So if we go to our wheel, and if you aren't familiar with this, I'd encourage you to draw this if you have a pen or take notes with this. You'll be able to, you can explain this to your kids. I drew this wheel for my daughter, Caitlin, the other day. She's six. She said, what are you talking about? That's such and such. I said, oh, the wheel. She said, what's that? And I explained it. It's really helpful. So at the center of our wheel is this, that we are loved by God. That's the hub that everything else connects to. All the rest of it is going to be our response. But if you forget the love of God that God has this love for you, then you will try in vain to grow in your faith and it will all just be your own effort and you thinking that you can do it. And the hub of Christianity is that we're loved by God. This is what we mean when we say that we are gospel-centered. We center ourselves on the love of God. Well, John continues in 1 John, right? A few verses after this, here's what he says. He says, we love because he first loved us. When this becomes real to you, that God has sent His Son to absorb the wrath you deserved, and that hits home in your heart, you go, I love God. When you realize He groaned upon that tree so that I could sing, you sing, and you love, and you praise, and you worship. We do it differently, but your heart soars with this truth. So we're loved by God. That results in us loving God. That's the kind of top spoke of this wheel is that we love God. We respond to God's love for us by loving him. This looks like a lot of different things. We love God personally and privately, right? As we pray and as we read the scriptures, and right? We, we still do that stuff, but we do it saying, God, grow my love for you as I do this. We love God publicly when we gather here and we sing of God's love and we remind each other, oh yes, yeah, we love God. We love God, I hope, as we work. Right, as you go to work tomorrow, as you stay home tomorrow with the kids that are on fall break, I hope you pray, God, help me to imitate you this week. Help me to imitate you today. Help me to honor you. Help me to do the things I do in a way that shows love for you. Right? We, we are loved by God, so we love God. But it doesn't stop there, right? Jesus himself said, it's not just love God with all your everything, it's love your neighbor as yourself. John gets the message, and so in 1 John, he continues We love because he first loved us, and then he says, verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So if you're going, oh, I love God, I love praying. I love reading the scriptures. I love thinking about these important and deep truths of God. I don't like people. You know, John John comes to you and he goes, liar. You're a liar. You're a phony. You're kidding yourself. You think you have this great, pious relationship with God because you're so in love with him. But if you don't love people, liar. He, he, he goes so far, I mean, this is kind of a convincing argument. He goes, if you can't love your brother who you can see, how are you going to love God who you can't see? And isn't our love for the people around us a great evidence that we love God? Right? These things are inextricably linked. And so they make up the other spokes of our wheels. We think about this for our church and for your life individually. So we're loved by God, so we love God. And then we love neighbor. And those neighbors, those brothers that John talks about, come in different packages, right? There's, there's our spiritual brothers in the church, people that are part of our church family and part of the body of Christ, and we want to grow in our love for them. There's our actual family, People that are in our family, or that used to be in our family, or that might be in our family someday, right? There's, there's loving our, our family neighbors, and then there's actually loving our neighbor neighbors. Like, did you ever, do you ever think, maybe this actually involves your literal neighbor? Who you sleep 40 feet from in many houses, right? Here's a great exercise. Draw a grid, right? Draw a tic tac toe grid. Put your house in the middle and see how many of the squares around it you can fill out the names of your neighbors. Gulp, right? What, like, what if it actually means that? What if it means the people at work? Like, you might start with knowing their name, it would be a good place to begin. But, but you get the point, right? If, if you say, well, I love God and I'm loved by God, but my family, they don't get much of my time. They, they're pretty neglected. Liar! You say, well, I, you know, I, I love the church and I care a lot about my family, but you know, the people down the street, I don't even know their name and the person where work, I guess they're going through a hard time, but I, they're kind of annoying. Liar! Right? I mean, this is strong. This is serious. It's a command, the greatest command, love God with everything, love your neighbor as yourself. And if you look at that wheel, as many people have, as I've drawn this out and gone through this, they go, okay, love God, love neighbor, love family, love church. I stink at all of it. (laughs) Like all these, all these spokes are just collapsed and crumpled. Okay, great. Then go to the, go to the hub. Because listen, you weren't loved by God because you were so good at loving church and family and God and neighbor. It's because he loved you in spite of you. So remind yourself of that. And out of that love, begin to love others. That's the command of love. This scribe gets it, and Jesus says, verse 34, When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. You're getting it, man. If you get that love is the lens through which you evaluate your spiritual life, then you're getting it. You're close to the kingdom. So he has this real friendly encounter with the scribes, which is kind of a relief after he'd had these you know, not-so-nice uh, encounters with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But, but Jesus is going to confront the scribes as well. And so the next thing he's going to confront them about is their understanding of who he is. And so you might call this point the Lord of love. Right? Who is Jesus really? Who is, what's he really about as, as the Lord of love? And so he begins to challenge the scribes. It says, verse 35... And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? By, by the way, we talked about this probably a month ago. This was the very common idea, right? In 2 Samuel 7, David had been promised by God that there would be a descendant on his throne, a Messiah, right? And so when the blind man back in chapter 11 or chapter 10 shouts out, Son of David, have mercy on me, he's saying, Messiah, you're the Messiah. So this is a title. For Messiah, Jesus says, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? You know, huh? About everyone thought that. Verse 36, David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, here's a quote from Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls, David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Now, this is one of these passages that we aren't that familiar with this psalm that he's quoting, and we're not familiar a lot with these controversies surrounding the scribes and the sons of David. It can be very confusing. I want to try to help simplify it for us, and then we'll we'll move on to the end of this chapter, all right? So here's a look at Psalm 110, verse 1. This is what Jesus quotes from, all right? This psalm is written by King David. So David is the one speaking this, all right? So this is a quote of David. David says... The Lord, and that's the all caps. Anytime you get the all caps in the Old Testament, it's talking about the Lord Yahweh. That's the name of God, the I am. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Messiah. This is how everyone understood this. Everyone understood that Psalm 110 is talking, God is speaking to a Messiah, to an anointed one, who they all went, this is the son of David. The Messiah is the son of David. What does God say to this anointed Messiah? God says to him, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He says, occupy this position of power, this position of authority. Sit here at my right hand, right? This is almost as if to say, have my authority. Jesus is going, listen, it's great that you guys all see that the Messiah is the son of David, because that's true, but you're missing something else that David says. David says the Messiah is not just the son of David but the Lord of David. Right? Notice, David doesn't say, the Lord says to my son, sit at my right hand. But David says, the Lord says to my Lord. David's going, this is the one that I, that I yield to, the one that I bow to. Right? Now, only really, really unhealthy parents bow down to their children. This is increasingly common, actually. Um, you know, I heard a story recently about this guy who said, if I were going to start a new religion, this is what it would look like. And he posted a picture of his kid. Scary, right? Most people just informally worship their children. Some people do it formally. But especially in this culture, a father, a patriarch would never say, oh, oh, son, my Lord, let me serve you. You're so wonderful. Let me, let me submit to you. That would never, ever happen. And so Jesus is saying, you're right that I'm the son of David, but I'm also the Lord of David. And you're right that I'm David's son, but I'm also God's son. And he's saying the scribes, they're close to the kingdom, but they can't quite get there because they don't know who I am. And so therefore, when we're told to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength, they can't do it because they don't know who the Lord is. It's me. It's me. It's the one who will die for them. It's the one who will sacrifice myself for them. I'm the Lord of love. So he critiques them. They don't know who he is. But then finally, Jesus gives us the cost of love. The cost of love. And he tells two more, uh, th- there's, there's two more things that happen here at the end of the chapter. And they're a remarkable contrast. The first one is Jesus talking about the scribes and how to not be like them. The second one is this example of a, of a widow giving all she has. Let's look at it. Verse uh, 38. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces. And have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at, at feasts. You get the idea there is as, as Jesus is saying that. This is what they're after, right? I want to look impressive. I want to have this honor. I want to be important. He says, watch out for that. Beware of that. Pay it. Be suspicious of that. Verse 40, who devour widows' houses. We don't know exactly what Jesus means here, but it clearly means that they're very much into the pomp and circumstance, but not into actually caring for the poor. He says, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They look like they love God. Ooh, they're praying. Ooh, it's long. Ooh, it's really eloquent. But who are they praying to? Themselves. Why are they praying? To look good. It's for a pretense. Jesus says, watch out for this. It's very easy for very religious and very powerful people to want to look important and look like they're loving God, and all the while they're neglecting the poor, and they're not really even caring for God. And Jesus says they will receive the greater condemnation. Now listen, I I don't know uh, if this will upset you or what all you think about the Pope, right? He's here this week in, in the United States, and it's kind of a big deal if you're watching the news. And I don't know what you think of him or what you think of the Roman Catholic Church, and that to me really isn't important for this point. I think you have to admire that the Pope is doing power differently. Right? He's not staying at the papal palace. He's staying in a little apartment. And when he goes somewhere, the priority, the places he really wants to, to be are with the poor and with the prisoners and with the hungry washing their feet he's doing some very intentional things to say we need to think about love differently so whatever you think of the pope good or bad i think that's admirable and i think that's in line with jesus and jesus is saying if it's not like that watch out and then he goes to the other side and he says look at this example verse 41 and he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering boxes i always thought this would be a funny thing for a pastor to do I imagine if I, you know, hey, uh, you know, the guys I'm discipling, hey, we, come up, let's, uh, let's sit down, let's, let's sit back there by the giving boxes and watch everyone give, right? This is an interesting exercise. He sits down opposite the treasury. They would have had these, uh, these big shofar horns, right, these kind of ram's horns that, that, that people would drop money into. There were probably 13 of these boxes around there, so they're kind of sitting there and they're watching. It says, many, pe- many rich people put in large sums. Amen. (laughs) Just kidding. But notice, he he won't rebuke that. That will be great. Verse 42. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. These coins, they would be the smallest kind of coin you could have, right? She got two, it's not much. That's what she puts in. She got these large sums by rich people. You got these two basically insignificant pennies from her. Verse 43, and he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly I say to you, when Jesus says truly I say to you, listen, he's, he's saying it. Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. Huh? What? Did you hear what he said? This widow who gave these two insignificant things, right? You're not going to build anything with that. You're not going to pay for much with that. Like, in the world's eyes, it's insignificant. She gave more than anybody. Why? Because Jesus doesn't see the, he, he sees the value not as the amount, but as what it costs. What does it cost you to trust him? What does it cost you to give? He says, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Jesus says these wealthy people, they've got a lot, and thankfully they give a lot, and they should. But, but this woman gave everything she had. She gave a hundred percent of it. It strikes me as interesting that we would try to talk her out of that. If someone came to you, if a widow came to you and said, here's what I'm thinking of doing. I'm thinking of liquidating everything and giving it all to God. I'm going to be entirely dependent on God and his people. Because I got no other thing to take care of me. What would you say? You'd go, well, wait, 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 wait. That's not very wise. That's not very good stewardship. We would try to talk her out of it. And Jesus is holding her up and saying, this is the example. This is the thing to look at. James Edwards is a great commentator on Mark. And here's what he says about it. He says, that which made no difference in the books of the temple is immortalized in the book of life. She is following Jesus all in. Now, this is a familiar story, right? If you grew up in Sunday school, you heard the story of the the widow. and, And kids are familiar with this story But one of the things I'm always asking as we're studying Mark is, why is this story here? Why did Mark put this here? Because there's a lot of other things Jesus did at the temple and said at the temple Mark doesn't include, right? He's not putting everything he could possibly put in. He's like this documentary filmmaker taking all this raw footage and going, ooh, this says something important. What does this widow, what does this scene say? Why is it here? What's the point? Well, there's three things that this widow provides, the story of this widow. She provides, first, a contrast. She's a contrast. She's a contrast. She's an example. And she's a preview. She's, first, a contrast. She's a contrast between the scribes and, and her, right? Here's the scribes look important, be really visible, have a lot of people, but have it all be empty. And here's this poor widow, not important, not very visible all in. It's this contrast, right? Jesus has been saying this religious system that's here at the temple, these religious leaders, they're dead man's bones. They, they, they look good on the outside, but inside they're, they're a rack. And yet here's this widow. She's this beautiful contrast to all the religion that Jesus has been condemning. So she's a contrast. She's also an example. She's an example What has Jesus been saying the whole way of this book, right? This is interesting. This this end of chapter 12, this is the end of Jesus' public ministry. So from 13 on, everything we're going to hear and see is happening in private or mostly private settings. This is the last place that Jesus is out in front of the masses. And from the beginning of him being in front of the masses, what did he say? He said, come, follow me. And then he said if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Jesus all along the way has been saying, follow me, follow me, trust me, die to yourself, be all in, trust that I'll take care of you, come with me. And the last thing we see in his public ministry is a widow the most unlikely of person, just like blind Bartimaeus was the most unlikely person to see Jesus. This is the most unlikely person, and yet she gets it. She's all in. All of her life is given to God. And then last, I think this story is here as an example. Why? Well, here's the phrase. Look at the phrasing of the end of verse 44. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. In the Greek, what that literal translation of that could be, she gave her whole life. Whoa, think about that. She gave her whole life. And what is Jesus about to do? so that people would follow him, so that people would love him. He is about to give up his whole life. And he is going to lay it down on the cross, and he is going to absorb the wrath of God for our sins, so that we, like this poor widow, could have our whole lives offered to him. Jesus is the true lover who fulfills the great commandment. Jesus is the true Lord who has authority over everything. And Jesus is the true widow who gives his whole life for those who can't. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you again for your word. I thank you for how it challenges us to love you, to love others. God, we can't do that. We can't do that faithfully. And so we're thankful for Jesus who has lived that commandment out perfectly for us, and who's now died in our place, and who is now giving us by your Spirit power to be able to love you and to love neighbor. Help us to see our lives through that lens. And thank you most of all for Jesus who gave his whole life. We thank you in his name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.